Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Literary Studies Podcast, and I'm Natalia Shpulova-Said, one of the hosts. Today I'm speaking with Megan Ward, and we will be discussing her book, Seeming Human, Artificial Intelligence and Victorian Realist Character, that was published by the Ohio State University Press. Hello, Megan. Hello. Well, as far as I know, this book was just uh, published a couple of days ago. That's right. Well, congratulations on this recent publication. Yeah, thank you. Telling the truth, the title of the book invites a lot of questions. For example, seeming human, what it, what does it mean to be human? And what that concept of human involves uh, in general. Um, uh, artificial intelligence and Victorian realist character. So what's the connection between these two very uh, significant notions? And I hope that we will... Um, discuss all these questions uh, today. Uh, but before that, um, do you mind if you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I'm an assistant professor at Oregon State University, uh, where I teach classes in Victorian literature, the Victorian novel, um, and British literature surveys. And I also teach children's literature each year. Uh, and uh, how did you develop this interest in uh, artificial intelligence and teaching uh, Victorian literature? Hmm. Well, I, um, this book, although it is my first book, is not actually a revision of my dissertation. My dissertation, um, which I wrote uh, at Rutgers University uh, under the direction of Kate Flint, was a really different project. And but, but the sort of thread that runs through both that project and this project was an interest in um, novelistic representations of repetition, like when characters do the same thing over and over again. And as I was um, thinking about how to turn that dissertation into a book, I sort of got interested in thinking about whether or not there was a connection between that, those repetitive um, actions and the kind of uh, repetitive uh, idea of the cybernetic feedback loop. So that was sort of the starting point, and that really took the project in a totally new direction. I mean, it was just a kind of uh, both out of the blue random thought, and shortly after finishing the dissertation, that then really took me in a in a completely different direction. Um, can you tell us a little bit about book that seeming human? Um, I'm just curious about the title <laughs> for right now. Um, what message were you um, delivering? while giving this particular title to the book? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess the idea is that we think of characters, um, you know, as being non-referential, right? As not uh, referring to actual people or attempting to be actual people. But yet when we talk about realist character, we still tend to look for these very um, particular psychologized uh, characteristics like interiority or a kind of inner life. And my thought was that we could turn to um, 
not psychology or sociology or cognitive science, you know, which are, of course are, are, are the study of actual people, but just turn instead to the study of simulations of machines that are trying to seem human. So it's really kind of arguing that AI offers us a theory of verisimilitude, um, and it offers us a theory of uh, that's appropriate for a fictional character because both realist characters and early AI are attempting to seem human rather than be human. Mm-hmm. And where do you lo- where do you locate uh, psychology in this kind of theory of um, realist characters? Do you uh, still consider we, psychology as an important part for your theory, for example, or while you're developing this theory? Right. I think that historically psychology plays an interesting role and is certainly runs um, through the Victorian period and into AI. And psychologists were really important in, in determining early theories of AI and, and cybernetics. Um, but I think that uh, rather than looking to psychological theories that, of course, are theories of mind that um, that that focus more on interiority and thought representation, I wanted to think about what are some other theories of seeming human that that lie outside the realm of psychology. Um, and certainly early AI is actually very shaped by psychology, especially behaviorist psychology. Um, but for instance, in the final chapter of the book, chapter four, um, I, I go back and look at uh, the sort of schism between Henry James and Thomas Hardy. You know, James, of course, is known for his um, highly psychologized characters who have, you know, for these really, really complex representations of interiority and thought. And Hardy is sort of known for the opposite, right? He's known for these sort of sensational bodies. And I, I argue that actually they both were... Um, they both studied 19th century theories of mind and consciousness. So it wasn't that Hardy chose not to or even eschewed kind of representations of mind, but rather that he saw representations of mind as happening in a different way, happening through these kind of networked perceptions. Um, and I, in order to make that case, I look at a very similar schism that happens in the 1960s between um, something called the perceptron, which is a, a sort of now long forgotten, but then very powerful model of AI that is a model of networked perception, and um, something else called the physical symbol system, which is basically computing as we know it today, where information you know seems detached from a particular machine or a particular perception and kind of floats freely. Um, and so I argue that we can look to that split in the 1960s to, to explain that much earlier split. So it's not that James's characters are somehow better than Hardy's or that they're more advanced or they're more progressive, but simply that they're two different kinds of artificial mind. So um, let me see if I understand that correctly. Um, there is a very intricate connection be- between characters and mind. That's where you uh, start developing your theory, right? Um, is that correct to say that novels can be viewed as representation of mind rather than just characters? Well, maybe maybe one way to think of it is this. I, I think that... Um, discussions of realist character have focused so heavily on representations of, of, of mind and of thought that they, that we haven't really been able to account for all of the other realist characters 
that don't focus on representations of mind. So what about flat characters? Mm-hmm. What about embodied characters? What about um, melodramatic characters? What about sensational characters? These are all characters that we find in realist fiction, but um, the story of realism, which is characters get progressively more and more interiorized, has a hard time accounting for all of these other kinds of characters who are not so intensely interiorized. And so, mm-hmm. oh, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, would you agree that in realist uh, um, characters or in realist novels, there are two dimensions which are very closely interconnected, which is interior interiority and exteriority as well? So, and uh, if we take, well, uh, so I, I would like to know where um, your point here is in terms of this interrelation. And if there is some interrelation, then um, how do we include this kind of overlapping uh, into this uh, connection between artificial intelligence and Victorian realist characters? Uh, well, I think that there certainly you have interiority and exteriority, and but those are sort of you know those are capacious categories that can that can also include things like um, networks, uh, character networks that stretch across the novel, right? So not simply the individual character, which has also been kind of a focus of um, studies of character up until this point. Um, uh, so-called flat characters that you know are predictable or are unsurprising. So I think it's not simply exterior versus interior, but maybe a, a shift, a kind of shift towards seeing all of the ways that there are to talk about realist characters that aren't just focused on interiority or exteriority, mm-hmm. um, but instead like a kind of much more multivalent uh, set of characteristics that we could think about. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that is that, that's what AI gives us mm-hmm. is that language to talk about and models to use to think about things like networked characters or sensational characters or flat characters. Uh, so uh, there are a lot of works that you mentioned in your research to uh, confirm your viewpoint. Uh, could you give us just a little bit of more detailed information on those works that you decided to include and why? Uh, are you thinking of sort of uh, novels, like the, the, the novels that I examine, or are you thinking of the AI research or more like secondary literature? Uh, let's start with um, novels. Okay, <laughs> sure. So, um, well, the chapter, the book is broken up into four, um, four sections, and each section looks at a different kind of aspect of characterization. So, um, yeah, the, the first one is about development, the idea of characters developing over time, then predictability, flatness, and finally mind. Um, and the, the idea here is that we can kind of see each of those sort of familiar terms with fresh eyes if we look at them through um, through the lens of AI. So uh, for the chapter on development, I look at the um, I look at domestic realism in the 1850s and 60s, which has typically been seen as a genre in which characters don't develop very much because of how repetitive their lives really are. You know, it's trying to sort of describe the sameness of domestic regime. Uh, the second chapter is about predictability, and it and it argues that we should shift 
Um, and it looks at uh, detective uh, and sensation fiction in the 1850s and 60s, um, thinking about how the, that genre has typically been termed very predictable, um, that, it, that they're not novels of character, they're novels of plot, because the characters are so predictable or stereotypical. And instead, I use um, Claude Shannon's information system to argue that we should shift away from thinking about predictability as inhering in a single character and towards thinking about how these novels uh, create unpredictability through networked characters, you know, how each character acts as a kind of connection to a different one. Um, then in the, the, uh, the third chapter focuses um, solely on the novels of Anthony Trollope to think about flatness and uses Alan Turing's Turing test, a kind of famous uh, 1950 test of artificial intelligence to as, as a sort of theory of artifice or a theory of flatness to recuperate those flat characters. And then finally, the fourth chapter, as I mentioned, looks at James and Hardy and theories of mind. And uh, in terms of uh, those fresh readings that um, this kind of theory offers, would you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Um, I think that uh, there's a few things that, that the book offers um, that are new, and there are some you know fresh readings of those novels. But sort of if we want to think in the big picture, or the kind of overall sort of big payoff, I think one of the things it does is it um, it offers an atypical historical frame, right? I don't look at 19th century representations of computers or machines or math or anything, right? I'm using the emergence of AI in the mid 20th century as a theory, right? In the same way that one might use Bourdieu or Foucault as a theory. Um, and so I think it's in doing that, it's really rethinking the relationship between literature and technology mm -hmm. um, because literature here is not simply technologies after the fact representation, like, oh, representations of Victorian machines in Victorian novels. Instead, it's saying, um, that technology can offer us a kind of theory of how to seem human, a theory that's applicable to these novels that were written long before the theory emerged, because these novels are asking very similar questions, right? They're asking, they're asking how to seem human. They're asking, um, you know, how, how does development or learning take place in a repetitive environment? How does information stretch across a signal? How does, um, you know, how do, how do, how do you seem realistic when you're actually not a human? Uh, those are all questions that the Victorian novel asks, and they're the same questions that AI takes up almost a century later and offers us some some theories to think through. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm still curious about this phrasing, uh, seem human. Um, is this uh, that idea that... Uh, you develop in your uh, research that all the characters that are created by realist writers um, are designed as if they're human. Uh, or... so let me make sure you understand. So the question is, were Victorian authors creating characters to seem human? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think, you know, authorial intentionality is always tricky, for sure. But I think that one of the key debates about realism in the 19th century was uh, was exactly its, um, its own realistic nature. You know, I think that uh, there were... Um, accusations that there wasn't an actually enough art or artifice involved in realism, that it was mere copyism was one of the, one of the art accusations. Um, and so, you know, and there were others who argued back that 
that seeing life represented back to us just as it is, is really valuable. Um, at the same time, I don't think that Victorian authors were unselfconscious in doing this. Like I think, you know, and, and George Levine is really the kind of uh, seminal critic here who's argued very persuasively that yes, Victorian authors knew that this wasn't, uh, you know, this wasn't sort of real life distilled directly onto the page, that these were, you know, artistic creations and dialogue isn't actually how people speak. And, you know, there are all these conventions associated with it at the same time. So were they meant to seem human? Yes, but within a kind of series of artistic constraints. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one notion that you mentioned, um, it's stochastic system and mm-hmm. using stochastic systems for reading. Um, would you explain that kind of uh, concept? Sure. So the stochastic system in information is a way of measuring a, a, an information signal, and it's a way of measuring its predictability. So signals that are very predictable actually contain less information because the signal it, it, uh, the signals are so similar, um, whereas in uh, a, a system that is very unpredictable has actually a lot more information, so a lot more variety within it. And so I use that kind of basic understanding of the stochastic system to think about characters stretching across a network of the novel um, and thinking about how how having characters who are very similar across the novel, and this is important especially for novels that are thinking through questions of like disguise or questions of type. Um, so characters that really that stretch thematically across and indicate each other very clearly who's going to come next, um, that's, a not, that's a kind of system that's very predictable. Even if each of those characters is individually quite unpredictable, the overall net effect of the novel can be quite predictable. Um, uh, did you uh, have a chance to take this kind of approach to teaching Victorian uh, literature um, in your institution? And uh, if so, what's the uh, uh, student's response? Mm. I haven't really had a chance to do this because it doesn't fit very well into way, the way that we tend to teach literature, um, especially the way we tend to teach literature to undergrads, you know, which is historical. Um, but I have had the opportunity to think about incorporating technology into the classroom, which is important to me, um, and thinking about, uh, so for instance, once I taught a, uh, a history of the novel course, where we, uh, history of the English novel, where we looked at uh, the novel itself as a kind of literary invention, and then looked at inventions along, like te- technological inventions along the way that might help us uh, understand and contextualize the novel. So for instance, the invention of uh, the penny post and the epistolary novel or the invention of the machine gun and uh, Mrs. Dalloway. So sort of thinking about, and I think that's a much more conventional relationship between technology and literature than the one that, that I, um, that I divide in the, in the book itself. But it is, it is another way to help students begin thinking about literature and technology as, as interrelated. Mm-hmm. Well, but I, uh, uh, I'm sure it would be a very uh, interesting uh, course, but on the other hand, I can also uh, see some challenges for students, for example, to think about Victorian literature uh, while thinking about um, technology uh, in terms of those terms that we understand technology now. 
So uh, if we um, think about those challenges, how do you think they could be um, accommodated? Uh, are you thinking about challenges um, challenges of the, the kind of course that I just described or challenges of teaching in the way that the book lays out the relationship? Uh, I would say the book uh, uh, lays out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think absolutely that that is definitely a challenge. And in fact, it's been a challenge you know, in my own field and in my own discipline, it's raised a lot of, of questions. You know, when I've presented this work at conferences, um, I found that it's been sort of contentious, uh, that some people are really feel very energized by this possibility and um, other and in reader reports, um, but others, you know, have uh, have questions about the historical validity of it. So I think that especially in the undergraduate classroom where we are still, or, you know, it's students are still learning historical context to sort of flip that might be, might be really difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, Having said that, I do think that, uh, you know, I teach at a very STEM focused institution and it has been very rewarding to help students think about, you know, about literature as having an important role in helping them think through the uh, ramifications of technological innovation. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what you just said uh, made me think about those those ways that uh, can be implemented or can be incorporated into contemporary um, curriculum, for example, uh, to reintroduce literature from a new uh, standpoint, for example, or to re-energize, using your word, that interest in literature for students. Um, What, um, in your opinion, could be done for uh, reintroducing students to Victorian literature, for example, because I know there are some students who are exceptionally interested in Victorian period, but on the other hand, there are students who um, are more interested in, uh, like you said, the contemporary connection between literature and technology, and I think in this case, it's much more easier to speak about that kind of collaboration between these two seemingly different dimensions of human mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that Absolutely, students often don't know what the Victorian period holds, right? They have no prior knowledge of it, so they have no real reason to know how rich and interesting it is. Um, but I also think that once, that, that at least I often find that students are surprised by how much they enjoy, especially the Victorian novel. You know, it's so long and it seems really intimidating, but that they often find that they really love it for the same reasons that the Victorians themselves loved it. You know, the plot is gripping, the characters, uh, the character field is rich. Um, so I find that with enough sort of support, most students really uh, enjoy it and, and can get into it. As far as the question about technology, I think that it, it's, I mean, that question is sort of analogous to all the other questions about using literature to think through the present mm-hmm. um, and the kind of attendant benefits and possibilities and challenges that come with that. Um, One of the beauties of teaching literature from the past is teaching students about a time period that is different from our own. But at the same time, I think it would be a missed opportunity to focus solely on that because I think that also um, the Victorian novel explains so much about our own current crises and questions. I mean, certainly thinking about empire and the Victorian thinking about empire uh, seems a really important way to help think about contemporary politics. And the Victorian novels, questions about technology and about a changing world. I mean, my students often respond very favorably when I point out, you know, this may seem 
like it was a long time ago in a forgotten world, but let's look at this representation of the railway, right? And, and its speed and its power and its danger. And, and let's think about, you know, what else is happening to us right now that we might feel similarly about. And they often immediately come up with lots of examples about the pace of technology and multitasking and attention and, mm -hmm. you know, those, and, and can see those connections really readily and can understand that everything that we're experiencing uh, with communication and the pace of life, you know, have certainly been thought through and represented um, in literature before now. Mm -hmm. And um, how do you see this um, approach to uh, looking at uh, characters through the lens of um, artificial uh, intelligence can be applied to other periods? For example, you mentioned the um, 60s, I believe. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think that this method of thinking about technology as a lens and a theory uh, certainly is not limited to the Victorian period. Um, and I wrote a very short kind of just thought piece uh, several years ago for uh, V21, Victorian Studies for the 21st Century, for the V21 blog, that kind of suggested some other possibilities that we might um, think about. But I think certainly all tech, you know, technological innovation doesn't come out of nowhere, right? It's always rooted in a prior history. And so if we take the time to sort of walk that history back, um, then I think that there are, you know, there's a kind of untold field of possibilities in which technology can offer theories for all kinds of historical literatures. In your opinion, what's the best novel to use uh, to implement this kind of theory? Oh, well, what would be the perfect, the, the perfect uh, literary environment or the perfect uh, textual environment? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think that the real, I think that realism offers a, a nice analog because of this uh, question of verisimilitude. Um, I, I, I particularly liked, I like chapter three where I talk about the Turing test as a theory of flatness mm -hmm. and talk about the these uh, characters in Anthony Trollope's fiction. Um, in the Palisade novels, who um, Lizzie Eustace and Ferdinand Lopez, who up until this point have sort of been treated as uh, anti-realist or as, you know, characters who don't really fit in because of how flat they are. Um, and I sort of, and I try to show that actually if we think about uh, this, this, if we think about Turing's test, about what, what does it take for someone to fool uh, and the test is, is um, a computer that would pass the test would be a computer that could fool a human into thinking that it was human. And these flat characters sort of do that within the world of the novel. They fool others into believing in them, but the novel exposes them to us through narratorial intervention. And so I guess I, I really like thinking about Turing's test as a, as a test of flatness and as a recuperation of flatness as integral to realism and as kind of pointing us towards the limits of realism mm -hmm. um, as as an aesthetic. So, and I was also curious about this uh, chapter on flatness and uh, on this concept of flatness in general. Uh, is flatness something that is created for us or is that something that we create? Like, is it a judgment call? I mean, I think it can be a judgment call. And certainly when Ian Forster writes about it in aspects of the novel, I think he talks about it much more as a judgment call. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for Trollope, the novel is consciously creating these characters and saying to us, you know, the narrator constantly interjects and says, um, yes, 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 you know that, uh, 
you know, you know that Lizzie is lying, even though these other characters don't know. Or we know that she's not sincere, even though they think that she is. And so it really, it really, you know, prevents her from having inter- any interiority. And the novel does this, it says, because she's a, a sort of bad person. Um, and so, you know, so the novel's like, I'm going to, you know, the narrator says, I'm going to expose this to, for you so that you aren't fooled by her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in that case, I think it's the novel creating flatness and kind of depriving a character of interiority, um, kind of fueled by this this moral reasoning. And so for that reason in particular, I think it's important to, to show that that flatness that's created by the novel isn't actually making Lizzie non-realist. It isn't actually sort of like throwing her out of the realist tradition, but it's almost kind of letting us see under the hood. You know, it's almost letting us see here's here's how um, here's how the realist effect can happen. You know, through through these exterior kind of descriptions and behaviors and uh, self-making that Lizzie does she actually does fool everyone around her. And if it weren't for the narrator, she would fool us too. And so I think that that revelation shows how deeply imbricated she is in Trollope's realist aesthetic rather than being a rejection of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's the mechanism of this very complicated uh, movement uh, back and forth? You mean in in the novel itself? In the novel or in the character itself, yeah. I think I think that um, in the novel, Trollope's narrator intervenes mm-hmm. to consistently show us, you know, not through like thought representation, not through free and direct discourse or interior monologue, but the narrator intervenes and tells us, um, uh, tells us, alerts us to this disjunction between inside and outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, is your current uh, project somehow connected with this theory, or um, it, do you plan on um, further developing uh, this theory that you presented in your book? Uh, well, my my current project is interested in the relationship between literature and technology, um, and it I wouldn't say it continues the theory of this book, but it certainly um, uh, draws on the kind of non-traditional historical methodology. Um, so while I was writing this book, I was also co-director of Livingston Online, which is a digital archive devoted to the manuscripts and artifacts of the Victorian explorer David Livingston. And so my current project kind of brings that project together with the with Seeming Human. Um, and it's uh, tentatively titled The uh, virtual collection from the Victorian novel to the digital archive. And it argues that uh, Victorian novels were shaped by, uh, were a kind of virtual collection, like an imagination of 19th century collecting practices, like natural history collecting, archival collecting, imperial collecting. And it and it says that, that the digital archive could be reimagined if we look back to these this earlier virtual collection. If we look back to the Victorian novel, um, the Victorian novel has ways of, of helping us think about how to archive non-physical objects, how to archive digital digital material mm-hmm. or virtual material. And what works do you specifically um, have in mind for this project? Well, I mean, I'm right at the very beginning of this project, but right now I'm working on um, a 
chapter that's about uh, our mutual friend and the idea of the queer collection. So mm-hmm. queer theories of archiving and um, how the, the sort of the the hoarding and the the uh, other kinds of queer collecting uh, practices that happen in our mutual friend might help us reimagine the the, the sort of uh, queer archive of today. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you planning on uh, creating any uh, new course which will be based on this new project? Uh, well, I have taught two courses: mm-hmm. an undergrad and a grad level course on on theories of collecting. So the undergrad course was really just more general, like theories of collecting. And then the grad course was specifically Victorian collections. Um, and both of those have been great. And actually, they've been great for introducing uh, students to um, to things like museum work or library work, you know, which, of course, are great, uh, of great interest often to English majors, but might be things that they wouldn't necessarily have exposure to. Mm-hmm. Well, this phrasing uh, really got my attention, um, theories of collecting. So, uh, to some extent, novels can also be viewed um, under the concept of collection because it's some collection of uh, images or symbols or even narrative techniques. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Susan Stewart argues that a collection replaces origin with classification. Mm -hmm. So you take objects out of their origin and you put them into a new context where the context is their 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 classifying schema um, and I think you could argue that that's exactly what a novel does and it comes up with a logic of seriality and chapters mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and plot networks to make sense of it and to create this new um, this new context thinking about how that works and how these things you know aren't just a physical collection of objects could really open up ways of thinking about collecting well um, good luck on this new project and again congr- congratulations on this recently published book and uh, thank you so much for this uh, very interesting conversation and uh, I hope that uh, your book is a very significant a significant contribution to uh, re-energizing our interest in the Victorian literature period and uh, in literature in general. Okay, well, thank you so much for having me and for talking with me about it.